Hi everyone, my name is Mare Verk and welcome to Life on the Farm. Welcome back everyone to another week at Life on the Farm. I am so excited to share with you all what I was up to the last week in my life. I was in the ICU for most of the week with a little bit of transitions of care. This was my second week of my appy rotation for this block and honestly I feel like this has been the best week yet and I may keep saying that because that may keep being true but honestly I feel like this is week where I feel like I had my breakthrough moment where I really started to feel like I had my footing I knew what I was doing I worked up the whole team all 12 patients I was able to go on rounds be basically autonomous besides my preceptor being there to put in other orders I gave full recommendations I even had the physician turn to me with a question it was the best week I can't even begin to describe to you even in my topic discussions, being able to talk about these different disease states. I had pyelonephritis and UTI, hap and cap, skin and soft tissue infections, and then even talking about acute ischemic stroke, which being able to do that before my ED rotation, I thought was super invaluable. So being able to be knowledgeable about that and be prepared for those conversations, I truly felt like I was starting to get a grasp on things. And I think one of the biggest breakthroughs for me, I think besides the physician turning to me with a question, was being able to go into the chart and look for these different imaging scans and procedures that were being done and knowing that once a patient has a certain diagnosis or if there's something they want to take a closer look at, I can go in and look at those impressions and get a better understanding for what to do next. And so all of these were just big personal growth moments for myself that I was really proud about and I thought I would share with you all. And I guess that kind of leads into the title for today's episode, which is doing the damn thing because I truly felt like that this week. And so I wanted to share with you all that it is possible to get there. It may take a little bit of time um, and it may happen sooner or later at whatnot, what have you. But the moment where all of that work that you put in really pays off it truly feels like you're doing the damn thing. So I just wanted to share that with you all. And without further ado, let's just get into this week. Alrighty, so what I wanted to start with today was a concept that's super specific to the ICU and kind of all of the things that we consider when we evaluate a patient who's come in. And this concept is known as FAST HUGS, B-I-D. And it's an acronym. It stands for feeding, analgesia, sedation, thromboprophylaxis, head up, ulcer prophylaxis, glycemic control, spontaneous breathing trial, bowel movement, indwelling catheter, and drug de-escalation. So as a pharmacist, as an attending, a physician, respiratory therapist, nurse, dietitian, what have you, we want to know the status of all of these different parts of a patient when we go in there and when we evaluate them, and it's what we try to hit upon when we're on rounds. And so as far as feeding goes, we want to know what the patient's nutritional status is. Are they NPO or are they on a special diet that they are able to eat? So whether that be a cardiac diet or renal diet, are they getting glucerna or Ensure or Levity? These are all different types of nutritional options for patients who are able to take things by mouth. The other options are having a tube placed. Do patients have an NJ tube, an NG tube, a Dobhoff? Do they have an OJ tube, um, a PEG tube? All of these different options. I would also highly recommend when there is something that you don't know or you're not familiar with to look it up because it will make your life so much easier, obviously. But don't just glaze over it and think, oh, like that's just like a feeding tube type of thing. Understand 
the situation like where that's ending up through what orifice is that going through that's such a bad word i hate that word but you get the point look it up the second part is analgesia so we want to know what the patient is getting for their pain and so the options for pain tend to be um, dilated or fentanyl i feel like those are two really popular options that we tend to see a lot in our own institution for sedation, you also want to make sure that the patient is adequately sedated. And so you want to check their RAS score, which you want them to be up about a negative four to negative five to make sure they're truly sedated. And so options for that, I did touch upon briefly last week. I do recall our propofol, Presidex, and then Versed is something else that we can go ahead and use as an option, which is midazolam. But in general, we try not to use benzos or benzodiazepines in the ICU because it increases the risk of ICU delirium. And that whole concept is basically you get very disoriented being in the hospital for the whole day in the same place all the time. And so the nurses and doctors and everything try to help with that by putting you on a certain schedule with opening up your windows, making sure you're getting light and turning all the blinds down and everything when it's dark so that your circadian rhythm doesn't get thrown off too, too much by being indoors for so long. And it's so interesting to think about, but you see that diagnosis on people's charts and you realize that they start to get agitated and they start to get anxious and whatnot. And so it's something to be very cognizant about. And as far as propofol goes, again, like I mentioned, it can increase your triglycerides. And so it, there's also this thing called propofol related infusion syndrome. And so you can experience hypotension or acidosis. Again, things we want to be looking out for with the patient. And then we check triglyceride levels every three days and we want to make sure that it stays below 400. And Presidex is also a really great option for sedation because it has less CNS depression. So that's something to take into consideration. But in general, that's how we approach analgesia. And I guess I just jumped ahead to sedation and whatnot, but you can kind of lump those together. Uh, then after that, it comes thromboprophylaxis. So we want to take a look to see if the patients are on any VTE, DVT prophylaxis. And it's actually something that I have as a specific, I guess, spot on my monitoring sheet, which I'll talk about a little bit more. But you always want to be aware of what type of anticoagulation prophylaxis your patient is on. And so I think a really popular option tends to be Lovenox, um, Anoxaparin, and then uh, something else that we tend to see are heparin drips in more complicated patients. And I feel like they also tend to be in some COVID patients, depending on the situation. So you'll tend to see that, or in the case that a patient's anticoagulated at home, they may continue doing their Eliquis or their Xarelto. It really just depends, but you want to evaluate, first of all, does the patient need it? Second of all, if they do, what is the proper dosing? So I feel like I've become really familiar with Lovenox as of late. And so being aware for the DVT um, VTE prophylaxis, knowing what that dose is supposed to be, changing that dose if their creatinine clearance is less than 30, and then also being cognizant of whether or not they have a BMI of over 40, and then even more so if they have a BMI over 47. So these are all different points. I highly recommend being on LexiConf and taking a look at these things, or if you have Rx Prep, it does a fantastic job breaking all of this down. But something again that we're cognizant of. Then from there, we also had head up. So patients don't lay like flat in the ICU or I'm really not sure where they would lay like that, but we tend to have head of bed at 30 degrees. And so you want to 
change that based off of the patient's breathing status, um, whatever they need to do. We haven't really touched upon it too, too much, but from what I've seen and what I've learned, we tend to keep it at 30 degrees. There's also ulcer prophylaxis. So we want to evaluate if the patient is on stress ulcer prophylaxis. And so patients that are in the ICU tend to be under a lot of stress. They also may have a GI bleed. They may have a cardiac surgery that they're having. There's a ton of different indications for stress ulcer prophylaxis. Perhaps they're on it at home, but we want to evaluate each patient, see if they if they aren't on one already, should they be on one? If they are on one, should they remain on one? And then one of the biggest things is if a patient is able to take meds by mouth, can we switch their IV to PO? So all things to take into consideration, popular ones that we see are protonic, so pantoprazole or famotidine, which is Pepsid. So I also have a separate space for that on my monitoring sheets because it's a question that gets asked specifically is, is the patient on stress ulcer prophylaxis? There's also glycemic control. And so something that's been really interesting about this ICU rotation that I think is in comparison at least to my internal medicine rotation previously is that the pharmacists are the ones who control the patient's insulin on their own completely and they follow it very closely and because they're decentralized and sitting on the floor nurses come to them all the time with updated blood glucose readings and what their test strips say so that's really helpful to make um, on the spot changes and also and if a patient's on an insulin drip like I mentioned before actually the nurses are the ones who read the algorithm and figure it out from there so that's been a really interesting type of learning experience just because they are followed so closely. So throughout the day, I have tried to take a look and think about what adjustments I want to make. But something that I want to work on throughout the rest of this rotation is really taking a look at that when I come in and make recommendations for that. So I'm better understanding how to do glycemic control in this very just niche situation because there are so many compounding factors. A lot of these patients are not diabetic and it's just from the stress of being in the hospital and having a surgery done or being on really high dose steroids and then their feeding is just so or their nutritional intake can vary just so greatly that that can throw them off as well. So all things to consider and something I want to continue to work on throughout the rest of this rotation. The next thing is the spontaneous breathing trial. And so I may or may not have mentioned it before, but a lot of the patients in the ICU tend to be on a vent. Um, some of them could just be on nasal cannula, high flow nasal cannula, but a lot of them end up being vented because they don't have the ability to oxygenate. And so their oxygen, they destat, and from there they need to be vented. And so when they're able to be weaned off the analgesia and the sedation, we really want to see if they have the ability to breathe on their own, if they're going to end up taking a breath. And for that reason, then we can take out the vent. And so that's something that you hear a lot. It's called an SBT, spontaneous breathing trial. And then for patients, we also have something called an SAT, which is the spontaneous awakening trial. And so there are certain patients who once they're weaned off everything, it's truly about them waking up. And so that can be a process in itself. And yeah, that's just it's been a lot of learning, as you can tell. And then the other thing we want to take into consideration are patients' bowel movements. And so that's something that gets talked about specifically on round. What was, how many bowel movements have they had? What did it look like? We're all concerned with the function of their gut and being able to have that bowel movement, make sure there's no obstruction, make sure that everything's working fine. So we definitely talk about that. 
We also talk about indwelling catheters. So figuring out if a patient has a Foley catheter, condom catheter, whatnot, um, just being aware of that and understanding that. You can also see that they have um, a urine catch like right by their bed. So I find that to be really useful for trying to understand a patient's renal function on top of their CM creatinine and whatnot. And then there's drug de-escalation. And so I think that's where pharmacy plays the biggest role, and especially in regards to antibiotics. So we're constantly putting patients on antibiotics, especially broad spectrum ones, because a lot of these patients' initial diagnoses is septic or septic shock or sepsis itself. And a part of that one hour bundle when it comes to um, dealing with sepsis is putting patients on broad spectrum antibiotics. And I guess I kind of just threw the concept of a one hour bundle out there, but I did touch upon sepsis and septic shock previously. But what you want to take into consideration is the patient's lactate levels. So if it's above two millimoles per liter, you want to measure every two to four hours and go from there. You want to make sure you're taking blood cultures before you treat patients with any antibiotics or else you're not going to get anything back, especially with using broad spectrum antibiotics like Vanco and Zosin. Those are two really popular ones right off the bat because it gets that MRSA coverage and your pseudomonas coverage. Like I said, start those uh, broad spectrum antibiotics as soon as you take the cultures, but after. You also want to make sure that the patient has fluids, and so uh, we tend to use a crystalloid um, if there's hypotension or if their lactate is above four, and vasopressors. If they're hypotensive during or after fluid resuscitation, you want to make sure their MAP is above 65, and so something that we use a lot is levofed, and so being familiar with that, being called levo, I think is super, super helpful because I remember when I first started, I was like, you use levothyroxine for what? And I realized, no, 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 that's definitely not the same thing. Levofed is actually norepinephrine. And so very different things, but it gets thrown out there like levo. And in my head, you know, my pharmacy brain, I'm like, ah, yes, levothyroxine. No, 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 no. Levofed is norepinephrine. So just things to be aware of when you get into this type of situation. But yeah, that basically covers everything that I kind of touched upon. I do want to talk about one last quick thing, which is paralytics, because sometimes we have to paralyze patients. They may become dyssynchronous with the vent that they're on, and so it tends to be easier to paralyze them so that they're able to just have the vent do the work and not have their own breath work against it. And so Nimbex is a really popular paralytic. And something so cool that I learned is how they determine if a patient is paralyzed. And it's this idea called train of four. And they use these electrodes attached to um, the pads on the patient. And it's basically like a mini shock to see if they'll get any twitches. And so you want out of like a total of four twitches from that um, signal, you want to shoot for like one or two twitches at the most, which means that they are paralyzed because their nerve signaling is lowered or they're, yeah, there's less nerve signaling happening. From there, uh, another thing, I guess, wow, I had so much more to say than I realized was proning the situation in regards to turning the patient in order to relieve some of that fluid off the back of a patient's lungs. So patients can either be supine, which means that they're laying on their back, or they can be prone, which means that they are on their stomach. And so something that they've been trying with different types of patients, especially with ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, um, even with some COVID patients that they're seeing are destatting really quickly, is they want to try to prone them for a significant period of time. I think uh, 
it really just depends patient to patient type of situation to see if they can allow gravity to work a little bit to take some of that fluid off. And so I just thought that was so interesting as well. Again, things you just don't talk about because they're not medication related in pharmacy school. And so I thought I'd just put out there in case you're wondering what kind of ball game I'm currently in right now. So that basically sums up what I've learned in the ICU this week. And I guess now I'll get into what my patient workup's been looking like. So this week, as I've mentioned previously, I actually worked up the entire team on my own. And that was such a fulfilling moment for me. I was so proud of myself. I think it's important to celebrate your own wins. And so I was just on cloud nine the entire day. I was so proud of how far I'd come in such a short period of time. But I kind of want to touch upon how that whole progression worked out for me, just because I mentioned in the last week that I made it to nine. I had gone from what, two to three on the first day to nine on my fifth day. And then I was at 12 by my seventh day total. So I just thought I'd talk a little bit about that and how that process of giving recommendations goes, how to be confident on rounds and whatnot, because that is also a thing. Let me tell you, your timing is everything. So really quickly, I guess I'll start with when I come in, I think it's really important and something else that I wanted to touch upon from a prior episode was understanding how your preceptor works up their patients, because I think that'll give you a lot of insight on how to start your own process. So for me, it was really helpful to wrench in on Epic, all of the different tabs that they have, because then I was able to make sure I was looking at the same things they were, which were obviously important. And so from there, my preceptor is so top notch. She has her own monitoring sheet that she used in pharmacy school, and she shared that with me, and it's been really helpful. And I can just talk about what's on it really quickly. It's the room number, the name, when they were admitted, gender, age, height, weight, BMI whether or not they had a MRSA screen. So that's really important because we want to be aware of, does this patient have MRSA? Do we need to be concerned about MRSA? We're using broad spectrum. Can ruling that out allow us to then de-escalate our antibiotics? The chief complaint, the HPI, their past medical history, their PTA meds, their prior to admission medications. And then as far as labs go is every single day, their temperature, blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen source, um, they're the fish bones, so that includes your electrolytes, your white blood cell count, your hemoglobin and hematocrit, your platelets, uh, your creatinine clearance, your calcium, your magnesium, your T bile, your ALT, AST, INR, all these different things, your culture growth. And then on the back, making sure that you prioritize all of the different problems and then go ahead and make sure that all of the meds have an indication and then what recommendations you have. So for those of you who are still in pharmacy school, Really, really get good at your soap notes because I'll talk about that a little bit more. I really feel like being able to have a strong foundation in that will serve you really well when it comes to evaluating your patients and then presenting them to your preceptor. But we're not at that point yet. We're really just at working up patients and coming up with recommendations. And so for me, even though I'm able to get a snapshot in time of what that patient's labs look like for the day, I'm able to get an understanding of where they've been and where they're at. Make sure you know how they came in. What was their presentation? What's their chief complaint? Take a look at the attendings note, physician's note, and see what they're thinking diagnostically. Really use all of the information in the chart and make sure you're looking at all of the information. Try to go back as far as possible. Also look at the most recent note. It's basically going to feel like you've looked at everything eight times. It's because you probably have and because you can find a lot of this information in multiple places. But make sure you're doing your due diligence and getting a really good idea of what this patient looks like 
in general, not just in a moment of time. And so something that's really important is not only knowing what their values were, I guess I'm getting back to my point here, is but understanding the trend. You may see a patient with a really, really terrible CM creatinine, but if it's 1.65 today and it was 3.82 yesterday, we're thinking that it's getting better. That's something we want to see. Maybe it's not within the normal range. They're not at their baseline yet. But the fact that they're trending toward it being so good, that would be an incredible improvement, by the way. I feel like I've never seen a jump like that. But for the sake of this example, let's pretend like that's happened. You want to make sure that you're noticing trends as well, because something may be out of the normal, but it could be resolving. And that's what we really want to see with these patients. Always check your microbiome tab for patients who are on antibiotics. I cannot stress it enough. Being comfortable with looking at the microbiome data coming back and understanding that a gram stain can help you kind of see where you're going, but you're looking for that culture to come back. And if there is no growth, to then start questioning, when do we want to stop these antibiotics? What do we want to do next? Always be thinking about that. I've realized this week so much more so. I feel like on Monday, I was on every single room, running around trying to de-escalate, trying to figure out how we can narrow down. And so I think that's literally how I got termed. Like, I am the antibiotics girl on rounds. I kid you not. I feel like that's the biggest place to like you can focus on and really have a great conversation with the other people on the team about how to move forward from this. I've also become really great at reading chest x-rays. And by that, I mean following along as the med students do it. But you can definitely start to see the difference in these chest x-rays between patients. So a patient with a pneumonia, a HAP or CAP versus a COVID patient, you're going to see two very different types of lungs. With those with uh, that type of pneumonia, the community acquired or hospital acquired, you'll tend to see infiltrates or opacities or consolidations. Whereas with COVID, you'll see it's more diffuse. So it's across the entire lung. And so I think that was really cool. I still really can't read a chest x-ray, but to see the students pointed out, Always pay attention when the med students like are doing their things as well. I think it's super invaluable to have the opportunity to be able to look at all of these different media in real time. And so pay attention. Definitely don't tune out when these things are happening. If it, Even if it doesn't have to do with meds, you're there to learn in general. And so I thought that was such a cool experience. The other thing is that with the monitoring sheets, I just, yeah, I work one up for every patient and then every day there's a slot for to do the next day. And so I'm able to also see on my paper tracking in real time because the pharmacist is the one who uses the computer. So it's much easier for them to just go into the chart and like follow along and whatnot. But as a student using conventional methods of paper, I am back in the more traditional ages, it's a lot easier to have my fish bones from the last couple of days to refer back to to see is there sodium getting any better? Is there potassium getting better and whatnot? So is their platelet count doing better? You'll see a lot of these surgery patients, they have these insane hemoglobin, hematocrit, platelet counts, and then like two days later they're they've bounced back. So that's really cool to see. I think this is the first week also I saw a white blood cell count of like 49 and it dropped to 14 in one day. So that was so, so wild. But yeah, after you worked up your patients, again, make sure you ask your preceptor. It takes a little while to figure out your flow, your rhythm. You go on rounds and basically the med student or the nurse ends up presenting the patient. And from there, they start to have a conversation about everything. And I cannot tell you the number of times I have tried to speak up and say my recommendation. And then the doctor starts talking at the exact same time. And it's so funny because everyone else will hear you except for the doctor. And then they keep talking and you're like, oh my God, that was not the time to do that. But like I said, you don't get the timing right off the bat. It definitely takes a little bit. 
And so finally you start to realize when they bring up these certain things that they're talking about, that's where you can start interjecting. And you just kind of have to be a little bit louder than them and you have to be confident with it if you aren't they're not just gonna like open up the avenue and be like I mean sometimes they do this particular physician this week was not the type he was very much like a on the way to the next patient before really wrapping up the last patient I think the last physician I had the week before was definitely more of like a anything else before moving on so it really depends and so you have to be confident and ready with what you're going to say And so before we go on rounds, actually, my preceptor and I sit down and go through all the patients and talk about the recommendations. And so, yeah, another thing, you're not just going out there in the wild, wild west doing your own thing. I always make sure that the recommendations that I'm giving the physician, I vetted through my preceptor first. So that definitely helps as well. And so, yeah, again, when you find an opening, when they're talking about the specific situation that you're concerned with or a drug that you have a recommendation about, that's when you should go ahead and bring it up. Again, you may also have that weird clashing situation that I experienced where you're talking at the same time, but don't be discouraged. Just try again. Everyone else heard you. So you you have the path. Just go for it. So again, it really is about being confident, knowing and understanding your recommendations as well. Don't go over there with a recommendation and say, I think we should DC this and then not have an explanation because they could ask you or not having a follow-up plan with, well, what are we going to do next? I feel like that goes hand in hand with um, antibiotics primarily Um, or when you're recommending anything, just understand your reasoning and be ready to explain because you will be asked. So you want to build trust with physicians and you want to make sure that they feel comfortable turning to you. And so I think within the course of like the three or four days, I think that's what I was able to accomplish. So really, really, really try to build a rapport with your physicians because they'll start turning to you and it really starts to solidify just how much you know and being confident in those situations. Again, all a learning curve, but things to try to strive for. And I think from there, what else do I want to talk about? So I guess, yeah, just being able to build those relationships, I think is very invaluable because when we work interprofessionally in school, it's a very different vibe. I think when you're out there on the floor, it's, and in the real world, you have to show that you know your stuff. And so I'm actually not even sure if the physician knows what my official, like, situation is I low-key think he thinks I'm a pharmacist but like there's another pharmacist there so I don't know why we need two pharmacists on round I think he knows I'm a student I feel like my name tag is very prominently placed and I've seen him look at it so I think he knows but nonetheless the man turned to me this week and I was so over the moon he literally came over and was like I know you have an antibiotic to tell like talk to me about and I was just so blown away that I had built that trust so quickly where he came to me and he was right I had something to say Um, but it's cool because then you start to get in a groove with these people and rounds become this really awesome opportunity for you to show what you know and work with others and talk to people about why we're doing certain things there is so much I don't know as I've shared with you all that the med students know that the dietitians know that social work is privy to that I'm always asking them about when I don't understand and so it's great when they're able to do that back with you and so again being confident and showing what you know really opens doors as far as building relationships with people which is something that I always enjoy doing and I think you benefit so much more when people see that you're engaged and you're knowledgeable about these things that you're talking about so yeah 
Outside of that, the only other thing that I can recommend when it comes to rounds is looking up words you don't know. And I know that sounds so silly and so juvenile, but I really mean that. Know what surgeries are, know what procedures are, what equipment they're using, all of these different things. Your charts will be littered with them and some patients more so than others. But you want to be aware of kind of what is going on, why we're thinking certain things. And it really just takes two seconds because when you go on Google, you type these things. It gives you that like really nice picture like right at the beginning. So that's all you really need to see. It shows you where it is, what it is. Takes you three seconds. Highly recommend. I think a great example is ECMO. Had literally no idea what ECMO was before this week, but let's say COVID patient has already been on a vent for a really long time. Proning is helping, but it's not making too, too big of a difference. There was a potential for ECMO. I know there's no research on it right now. It was a long, complicated situation, not important. More important is what is ECMO. So the med student actually didn't know, and I actually had looked it up the day previously. So this was a really great opportunity. Again, because you don't know who doesn't know what. And so it's great to be informed yourself for your own reasons, but also so you can share with others. And so ECMO, basically, the reason that it's a level up from being vented is that it actually circulates the blood and oxygenates it for you, which takes the work off of your lungs and your heart. So it gives them a chance to recover. But as we know with COVID patients, it's just really complicated. So just something we were talking about, and it's really great to be able to understand those types of things. Another really great example that I had during this week was a patient had shown up with what appeared to be a stroke. And so I guess this kind of ties in with my topic discussion of acute ischemic stroke. Uh, she appeared to have a stroke. She went through the whole fast situation, the facial droop, the arm weakness, the slurred speech, and then also being within that time window. And so she was taken to CT. And so again, understanding what a CT shows you and what it doesn't. And what a CT shows you is whether or not there's any bleeding, so a hemorrhage. But what it doesn't show you is whether or not there's a clot or if there's any ischemia. So based off the head CT, it showed that there was no bleeding, so they were able to receive all to place, but then they end up doing a follow-up head CT the day later, and as well as an MRI. So they did an MRI in this case, and an MRI will show you if there's a clot or if there's um, any ischemia taking place, and so based off the imaging, I was able to see that there was no infarct and it was actually attributable to her neurodegenerative disease. And so it's those types of situations and being able to evaluate those imaging results and realizing that we're no longer treating this like a stroke, but that we need to focus in again on the patients. In this case, I believe it was Parkinson's or something like that may have been Alzheimer's um, that we would need to focus on more. And so really interesting thing to think about is that a patient can present with stroke, have stroke-like symptoms. Um, as long as we know that there's no bleeding in the brain, we can go ahead and move forward with that. But as far as treatment moving forward afterwards, within the 24 to 48 hours after the fact, we would want to approach it differently and just make sure that we are optimizing their um, neuro healthcare and whatnot. So again, a really great opportunity to just know what you're looking for to know these types of things and all these different diagnostics that we run on patients because it's really great to be well informed not only for yourself but also to talk about it with others on the team to know where to look and so that your recommendations line up with what we're doing moving forward so be confident in yourself you know what you're doing you got here for a reason you have all of this knowledge inside of you don't be afraid to share it and don't be afraid to build on it work outside of your comfort zone learn things that you aren't familiar with Again, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, I can't stress it enough. So yeah, I just went on a really long time about that, but it's because I find it to be important. So hopefully that's something that'll help you as well.
And now we'll get into my topic discussions. I know I shared with you all what those were earlier in the episode in the intro. And basically the way that it works is I work up the different disease states. And for me, what that looks like is talking a little bit about the pathophysiology and then getting into the treatment algorithms. But one of the biggest things I want to touch upon, and I know I've said it before, but I cannot reiterate it enough, is knowing what bugs are associated with which disease states. Because if you know that and you know your spectrums of coverage, you are unstoppable. You will. You are Kim Possible, Ron Stoppable. You're, the two of them together, you have become them. You are just a dynamic duo of, within yourself if you can get both parts down. And so at that point, basically the way I work them up, and I think I mentioned it previously because I was doing it over the weekend last time, was I like to use RX Prep because it gives you just such a good consolidation of information. And it's really great to just be able to then digest the guidelines because they are hefty sometimes, let me tell you. But again, really good to still look at guidelines because you want to be familiar and you want to understand what is recommended. And so RX prep is based off of that, but making sure you have the full picture because there are some little pieces of information in the guidelines that don't get highlighted in RX prep that you could get asked about. So I like to use those two things as well as my notes. We had the ID professor Conan himself, and he was just above and beyond anything you could ever imagine for an ID professor, just so knowledgeable with so many resources offered to us. So his notes are something I always turn back to. They're tried and true. Uh, they hold up quite well. I mean, obviously, when guidelines change, those change. But again, I like to consolidate all three. It's also a really good refresher for myself. And then making sure that when you're creating your treatment guidelines, you not only know the dose, but the length of treatment duration. And at the same time, being familiar with the drug classes. So knowing the common counseling points, common side effects, monitoring parameters, and all those types of things. I feel like that's definitely where I had room to improve was knowing that information, especially for drugs you don't see all the time, like linazolid and daptomycin. And so that was, again, something that I needed to work on and definitely got better with throughout that whole week. And the way that these topic discussions go is pretty informal. I write them on these like tiny pieces of paper. It only takes up like I'd say a page and a half and I jot down all the important info, but for the most part, I'm trying to do it based off of memory. And by that, I mean having actually learned the material. And so I kind of just run through what I have and then the person leading my topic or the person who decided to have this topic discussion with me um, for my antibiotics one, it's the antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist. And then uh, it just tends to be whatever other pharmacist I'm with for the day for the other ones. They just go through, um, ask me questions throughout. Um, we talk about certain scenarios. We talk about certain treatment algorithms and like what we would do in these cases and whatnot. So that was really cool, especially I think on the skin and soft tissue day, I had a patient with Fournier's gangrene. So being able to talk a little bit more about that. This is my second patient with that. And so I was much more familiar with it and knew how to approach the situation. Um, so yeah, just really great being able to have those conversations because I think when I compare it back to where I was in my hospital operations rotation and being in the ICU and in antimicrobial stewardship, I've just seen my growth go leaps and bounds above what I ever thought it could have been in, what is that, like a month period of time. But again, I'll actually get into that more when I talk about transitions of care. But 
Another thing that I do on a daily basis are my patient presentations. And I think I talk about them briefly, but something I really want to reiterate is being solid on soap notes. I know I've already said it this episode, but I truly mean it. I remember when I was in pharmacy school, we would get assigned them like, I'm trying to think like P1 year. It was definitely more frequent than P2 year. I think P2 year, we only did like two of them where we worked them up and then talked to faculty about it. But yeah, I think that was basically all it was. But here, pro tip for me to you, take it if you will, or if you don't, don't take it, is to be as detailed but also succinct as possible when it comes to explaining and presenting your patient. So starting off with S is your subjective. So making sure you have who the patient is, what their age is, what their listed sex is. Make sure you're checking notes to see if that's different. Look for pronouns. You know what I mean? Like make sure that you're focusing on the patient. Also being aware of what their chief complaint is and seeing what their past medical history is as well as pertinent meds at home. But I tend to leave that for a little bit later and I'll explain. But yeah, definitely mention those three, who the patient is, what their chief complaint is, and what their past medical history may include. And then going into O for objective, so mentioning their most recent labs. And for me, I like to just mention what's out of the ordinary. I will have all the information for those that are within normal limits as well. But when I'm presenting, I'll only mention those that are out of the usual range because otherwise they're not worth mentioning really. From there, I'll also go into my assessment. And so making sure that your assessment is really well thought out, mentioning all of the things that seem to be a problem, any of the certain diagnoses, you don't have to mention just yet, but noting what things are out of ordinary. So does the patient have low potassium? Is the patient's platelets like bottoming out? What is going on with this patient? What's their white blood cell look like? What's their temperature? Are they spiking a fever? What's their blood pressure? What's their heart rate? Do they have hypertension? Are they on any meds for that? evaluating the patient as a whole, noting anything that seems out of the ordinary is really great to mention in your assessment. And it's from there then that you're able to go into your plan. And so something that I also need to work on as well is prioritizing what the different problems we have are. And so this is something that I urge you to really practice when you're doing these things in pharmacy school is to focus on this. So being able to prioritize what we want to address and then within all of those things, What are we currently doing? What are the next steps? What are the thresholds we're trying to meet in order to move forward? How do we move forward in getting this patient to go home, to go to a sniff, to go to be downgraded? Whatever the end goal is, what are these different things we're looking out for? And so for me, I feel like I have so much room to improve, which is great because then I can share it with you all. My next step when it comes to all of this was I was able to structure everything the right way. But the part that I need to continue to strengthen and build on is What am I looking for in each of these different problems I'm pointing out in my plan that are going to allow us to move forward? And that'll definitely come with time. You know, you can't just do everything all at once. So for me, it'll be identifying what types of thresholds we're looking to meet, what we need to see in order to move forward. So again, all things for me to work on and I'm looking forward to doing so. But yeah, that basically sums up all of the things I do outside of working up patients that I kind of wanted to touch upon because they're relevant to my rotation. They're relevant to my growth and being a even more clinically aware pharmacist, pharmacy student, what have you. And I just thought I'd share in case it helped or anybody was wondering what the purpose of a soap note was or why they should take it seriously because it will come back to either haunt you or be the greatest blessing for you to be able to shine because you really put in the work beforehand. 
Alrighty, and then the last thing to talk about was transitions of care, which is how I wrapped up my week. And this was my first time being on this shift since I think the second to last week of my hospital operations rotation. So it's been about four weeks, a whole month, and this is where I saw the biggest growth within myself. I think about a month ago, I was really comfortable with doing med recs and reconciling that with the patient's inpatient medications as well as their after visit summary. But as far as going ahead and writing the transitions of care note in the intervention tab, I was really just kind of following along what was happening with the pharmacist who had written the note prior to me taking a look at anything. It definitely took me a while to get through each patient. But when I went in on Friday, oh my goodness, I felt like I had just really had a grasp on what I was doing. I immediately jumped into the chart, was looking at everything, evaluating patients on my own. I mean, it also helped that I had two new patients who had never been evaluated before for transitions of care. So I was writing the initial note. And I just, I feel like two weeks in the ICU looking at um, just doing direct patient care, it really, really paid off when I was sitting in TOC and having the opportunity to start evaluating patients just based off of all of their vitals and their lab values and what was in the note and their next steps and what sorts of procedures they were having done. I just felt like I really had a great grasp on it. I was able to work through my patients. I think when I split the load last time I had four and after this week I had done eight on my own within that same period of time. So again, and two or three of them, did I say two? I think it was just two were new. But yeah, doing two new ones, doing five discharge counseling, I thought that was a really great opportunity to practice because, you know, you can never get too much practice with that. With community, you do it. And then on rotations, take any opportunity you can to really know your drugs. So loved working in that office with those gals. They're really nice. Um, But yeah, basically just evaluating patients and just constantly getting exposure to that and working through my workflow has really solidified it for me. And I feel like I've gotten to a place where I'm much more comfortable approaching new people and figuring out what recommendations I want to make, looking at all the different tabs I need to. So it definitely takes time. It definitely takes practice, but be patient with yourself. I know every single day I would just be that much more motivated to go in the next day and really buckle down and be consistent as well. Don't try to change things every single day. Get a workflow going for yourself because that's, I feel like, the biggest way to really become consistent and start to work through these patients a little bit quicker. And so you can build on just two to three patients to four to six to eight to 10 and then eventually work your way up to a full team, whatever that looks like. But again, it's really about being consistent, finding what works for you, knowing where to find this type of information, being able to evaluate based off the different disease states and problems that are being presented. So again, I just think it's also really important to acknowledge that when you do see yourself growing and you notice yourself doing something even better than you had previously to really key in on it and to acknowledge it because I think it's so easy to latch on to those things that we need to improve upon and that's definitely me I'm always constantly thinking about how I can be better and because I want to be better in all the different realms of my life and especially when it comes to appies and whatnot but again I think that has to be balanced with also acknowledging your wins and the things that you are doing well because again this is a very lengthy process and they can be very long days and very tiring and so I think it's very important that you're also celebrating yourself and taking time for yourself something else that happened this week I know I'm so off base from transitions of care but basically to sum that whole thing up was I had really seen just how much I had grown clinically and being able to work up patients and to handle my own caseload was 
it was just, I don't know. I was just really proud of myself and I was a great Friday just overall, I have to say. And who doesn't love a Friday? I feel like the energy in the office is just like so different and everyone's just even happier than normal. And I don't know, the vibe is just great. So I'm about it. But yeah, back to what I was going off on my tangent about as far as it being tiring and whatnot. I literally went to bed at 730 on Thursday night. Like I am not kidding. And then I think Friday night I fell asleep on my floor. Like just like I don't understand sometimes but also just like understanding that sleep is very important I think we learned in neuropsych during our block that when you sleep is when you consolidate information and I truly feel like with the amount of info like thrown at me my head cannot like retain any of it unless my eyes are closed like if I'm not if like I am awake it's not really gonna like seep in and so my body just like is like you just go sleep anywhere apparently even my floor so again just being aware of that and like also this is an open public apology to all of my friends who I never texted back those nights because I literally am an old woman apparently and my brain just is like you need to close your eyes now so again just being gentle with yourself celebrating the little wins the big wins um, always looking out for the positives but always being self-aware and open to constructive criticism I think is an important all of those to be balanced throughout this experience because it is quite the roller coaster. You can be on the highs of highs, feeling your lows of lows, but again, just getting to a baseline where you are able to move forward constructively, I think is super beneficial. And with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much again to all of you who follow on Spotify or DM me about the podcast and share your experiences with me back. I love hearing about them. And again, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to share my wins and my areas for improvement. And I've just, I've had such an amazing time, not only with my appy rotations, but also being able to create this podcast and have something that I can look back on and hopefully it helps others. So Again, I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy, remembering to wear a mask, and remember to vote because that's coming up and that's super important. So again, thank you all so much from the bottom of my heart. It means the world to me and I'll talk to you all soon. Bye. (laughs) 